0: Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Thank you, Darren. Well, good morning, beloved. How are you all this morning? You are the early risers, right? good to see everybody here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We're going to continue our study in Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to look at just two verses there. But we're going to look at quite a few in the Old Testament. I wonder if you've ever watched a sporting event where the, uh, a player on a team uh, gave up right in the middle of the game and walked off the field. You ever, ever seen anything like that? That happened once. And this, this, this guy did it. Now, some of you who are hockey fans probably know the guy. Does anybody, can anybody name him? Yeah, yeah. Who did that? Well, you, well good for you. Way to go, Andy. Patrick Waugh. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yeah, he, he played for the Montreal Canadiens. Um, and uh, he, he was so angry that a former teammate had become the head coach. That he allowed nine goals in the first period and walked off the ice and said, "I'll never play for this team again." He was immediately traded. Now, there's three more people here. We don't. We don't. We. You know, it doesn't matter. There would be no sympathy for a guy like that, no matter how popular he is. But I bet you got, you know who these are. These are people who stuck stuck it out. Who's that first guy? You don't eat there much, do you? Our grand our granddaughter used to call him uh, the old man's house. Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's Harlan Sanders. He, he, was, he was pretty much a failure at everything he did in his, in his career. Uh, you know, Not for lack of trying, he just, he just never got it together. By the time he was 65, he had to retire from whatever it was he was doing, and he had a $103 social security check in his hand, and he turned it into KFC. Because he had this great recipe for chicken and people loved it, and so he just started, you know, having it in a restaurant. The second guy, now everybody in New England has to know who he is. Who is he? What? Come on, wake up. Thank you. Stephen King. Yes, Stephen King's got a very interesting story. Well, he tells some really weird stories, but he's got an interesting personal story. His first book was Carrie. How many of you ever read it or saw that amazing movie? Jodie Foster, scared the liver out of me. Anyway, so, so he wrote that, and he was passed over by 30 publishers, and he just was so mad, he threw his manuscript in the trash. Well, that, later that day, his wife went out and pulled out the manuscript because she believed in his, in his writing um, career, which wasn't anywhere at that point. And then finally, Doubleday published his book, and you know, the, as they say, the rest is history. Now, there's only a certain number of people here who will probably remember, unless you like really old black and white films, who the guy on the very end is. Who is that? Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Grace Kelly said of Fred Astaire that, that the history of dance on film will be uh, uh, Fred Astaire's history. But you know, when he first had his, his um, screen test, the very first screen test, that he ever did, the producer took down uh, three sentences. Can't act, balding, dances a little. Well, these people stuck with it. You know, following Jesus is not something you can opt out on when the going gets hard. And that's the story of Sarah that we're going to look at. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love stories like these three men and others where um, they succeeded because they kept at it. While we're not famous like them, we are famous to you in heaven, and we want to keep at it, and we want to learn about faith. So, Father, I pray that as I preach and as everybody hears, you will use this moment to convey grace to the souls of everyone here to endure in the faith and to be, and to be confident that you will keep us faithful. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Okay, so when it comes to following Jesus, quitting midstream is not an option for a Christian. It's like the writer to the Hebrew says, we need endurance. Now, first of all, we should recognize that Jesus promised, actually warned and promised, uh, what it would be like for us if we were going to follow him. The world would hate us. That's exactly what he said. Uh, we invite the hatred of the world. If the world hates you, just remember that it hated me first. If, it, if you belong to the world, then the world would love its own. But I chose you out of the world, and you don't belong to it, and that's why the world hates you. So we should never be surprised that there's opposition to our following Christ. And I've observed in, in my own life, and this may be true for you... That it's not often the huge challenges that I face that get me overwhelmed. It's the buildup of all the small things, and then there's that last one, and then I, it just seems like I've reached this impossible height. And you may be here this morning like that. In fact, you may be wondering when your impossible situation will be over. Where is that breakthrough that you've been praying for uh, maybe you're worn out by countless prayers for someone in your family to come to Christ and you just don't see any progress anywhere at all. And, and you're even out of ideas on how to pray. Uh, maybe it's a broken relationship with a daughter. Uh, you've been trying to reconcile and absolutely nothing is working. And now it, it's more like she's a 12-foot high stone wall with a six-inch steel door and a moat with alligators around it. Well, maybe it's, it's you. Maybe there's a sin that is plaguing you so much in your life, no matter what you do, you can't get victory over it. You've tried everything. You know, you've tried fasting and prayer retreats. You've even thought, well, maybe I need a demon cast out of me, and nothing seems to work. Well, we need one thing, and that's what the author of of Hebrews says. We need endurance. It's odd that in this book about endurance in the faith that the word endurance is only used twice. Once in chapter 10, the previous chapter to 11, of course, and once in chapter um, uh, 12. But they work as a kind of frame that that pictures what endurance looks like. And what endurance doesn't look like is the absence of trials or temptations or the removal of enemies that are hindering our way or reducing impossibly high mountains. Endurance endurance is seen in those kinds of things. I'll tell you where we can find endurance. When a Christian is standing beside the grave of a loved one and sorrowfully mourning in joy that there's a resurrection to behold and to to wait for. Or when a Christian is loving and sacrificing for a neighbor who is really nasty and ugly towards him or her. Or or it's the Christian who is standing for the truth against the onslaught of culture that says, y'all are on the wrong side of history. That's where you're going to see endurance. Endurance. What we learn from this chapter is that faith always, always meets a mountain of evidence and either faith stays and the mountain goes or faith goes and the mountain stays. You can't have both of them. Now the official doctrine of what we're talking about here and the official doctrine I think that's in the background of the writer's mind, to the writer to Hebrews, is the perseverance of the saints. And I think definitions are important, so I want to give you a definition for the perseverance of the, sta- of the saints. The perseverance of the saints teaches that the believer, kept by the grace of God, will successfully endure all the trials and temptations of this life and remain true to the Lord until death. Isn't that good news? That is... Really amazingly good news. Now, this doctrine doesn't mean or even imply that it's okay to be lazy about enduring faith. If anybody was to reason, now, well, now, if, if that's the case, then I could just live any way I want. No, no, not at all. In fact, that's evidence of a different kind. That is the evidence of someone whose conversion probably should be questioned. But genuine faith, real genuine faith, gives evidence of endurance, and that's what we see in Sarah as well as Abraham. Now, this entire section out of which these two verses come is a focus on Abraham. He gets the most ink in this, in this chapter. It's 12 full verses all about Abraham. But the, but the author narrows down just a little bit to focus in on Sarah, his wife, because of the, of the important role that she played as she and her husband faced this impossible, impossible mountain of evidence that stood against them. So let's read verses 12 and 13. This is the writer's summation of Sarah's life. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Since she, was con- uh, since she considered him, that is God, she considered God faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, that would be Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants of many, as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore." Now, the author gives us this very condensed telling of Sarah's story because he assumes we we know the story, and maybe many of us do. But a good rehearsal of this story will help us, and maybe this will be the first time you've heard the story of Sarah and her husband Abraham and their journey of faith. So we're going to go back and pick up some of the important threads of Sarah's life and see how her faith was made strong by the things that she faced and also to try to pinpoint that time when her faith actually sparked, uh, came alive because she turned to the Lord trusting him. So the first place we'll go is right to the beginning of the story, Genesis 12. Pastor Jamie's done a great job on, on working through this Genesis story, but I want it to be a reminder of what she faced. So we're going to read Genesis 12, Verses 2 and 3, and I will make you a great nation. This is God speaking to Abram. His name is Abram at the time. I will make you a great nation and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, the reason that I want to point this out is because there's a double sorrow going on here in this call of Abram to leave where he is living. He's living in the Ur of the Chaldeans, and God is telling him, I want you to travel to a land that I'll show you about. He doesn't know where he's headed. He's just going to go he's 75 his wife sarai which is her original name she's 65 okay they're not very old Uh, but the call includes something this couple it cannot possibly do it calls them to become the head of a great nation of people now here's the irony abraham abram's name in as abram means exalted father And he hasn't even got one child. To make matters even more difficult, remember, Sarai is barren. She cannot conceive a child. So we're not told, but we might wonder, what in the world, how did did Sarah process all of this? And my guess is, in her experience, she would have said, well, barren women don't have children. I'm not going to have children. The whole idea of creating a nation of people is just... Uh, ridiculous. I, I can't even conceive how that might even happen. Um, and and we, we shouldn't falter for this because this is the beginning of their relationship with God. They don't know God very well at all. They will get to know Him. But what Moses, the author of Genesis, is alerting us to is that faith, enduring faith, doesn't grow in the sunshine and the rich soil, it grows in the hardships and difficulties of fiery trials and sorrows. And this is why we're taught over and over again in Scripture. Don't, don't be surprised when trials come your way. Don't run away from them as enemies. Actually welcome them in as advocates for the maturing of your faith. So in spite of all of the questions, you've got to hand it to Sarah at this point because uh, she considered uh, that it was important to obey, follow her husband who is obeying this new God that they have just discovered. And so she goes along. Now, scene two takes us to Genesis 15. Abraham said, or Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. There it is again. How painful must have that been for for Abram to hear. I don't have children. I can't have children. My wife cannot conceive. And you're going to tell me I'm going to have an heir. And then he brought him outside. He, he, they were, he was sitting in his tent. He brought him outside the tent and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Now, God and Abraham here in this scene are talking one night. Sarai uh, is not privy to this conversation. And God here is reiterating the promise of the blessing that he originally gave to Abram. And we get the sense of Abram, Abram's temperature of faith right here. It's very, very low. In fact, he's kind of whining about the fact, I don't, uh, what are you going to give me, God? I don't even have any children. So I'll tell you what, Lord, I have a great idea. I've got a great idea. You're in a real pickle. So here's my idea. See Eliezer over there? He's been with me a long time. He's he's just a favorite of ours. You know, he's, he's not really a son, but just make him the heir. I mean, that'll get you off the hook. God absolutely rejects the offer out of hand. He doesn't even consider it. And he says to him and said, listen, Abram, I've got something far more wonderful in mind. At the very point of Abram's and Sarai's weakness and pain over not having children, that was the soil in which God decided to do something really marvelous. They would have their own son as an heir. And then to encourage his faith, God uh, uh, ushers um, uh, Abram outside the tent. He says, look at the stars, Abraham. Abram, look at the stars. See how many are. Count them if you can. Don't waste your time. You can't. Just get a picture. That's what I'm going to do for you i'll see to it well now we come to scene three genesis 16 where uh faith becomes a great train wreck in the life of abram and sarai now sarai abram's wife had borne him no children she had a female egyptian servant whose name was hagar and hagar or and sarai said to abram go now the lord has prevented me from bearing children Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Impatience is a very human thing, isn't it? Even for Christians. Now here we see an 86-year-old man, Abram, 76-year-old wife, Sarai, taking matters into their own hands. It's like watching a train wreck. He can't look away, and it's just going to be a mess for the rest of their lives and even for generations to come. Sarai is still barren. She's super frustrated with God's timing, and so she invents her own plan to help God out of the tight spot that he's gotten himself into. Oh, how many times do we find ourselves trying to protect God's reputation by human means? No different. So, Sarai virtually commands Abram to conceive a child with her Egyptian servant, Hagar. Hagar agrees to the plan. Apparently, she must have seen some sort of benefit on the horizon for her. And for reasons just too amazingly foolish to contemplate, Abram agrees. And when this plan goes south, and surely it will, I wonder if he's going to use Adam's defense. It's the woman you gave me. Hagar conceives a son. They name him Ishmael, which means God will hear. God did not bless Ishmael by bringing him into the covenant God made with Abram. He was outside that covenant. Now... I, Ishmael would eventually be able to come into that covenant with faith in the promises of God and certainly because of Christ but not that moment. God was focused on his purposes. So now we go back to Hagar. As soon as she became filled with pride, you know, she looked down on her mistress Sarai said, "Nan nan nan I've got the son." And this infuriated her of course. Because there was more pain in Sarai's life as, as a result of this foolish decision. And she insisted, she insisted that Abram kick her out of the family. And Abram was a little reluctant. This is his son, but eventually he caved. Uh, in fact, uh, Sarai uh, probably got um, uh, o- almost making physical threats against Hagar. She had to run. She, she fled into the wilderness where God eventually met her and took care of her. It's a very sad story. But there's a lesson here for us about the nature of enduring faith that helps us to overcome our unbelief. When our hearts want something so desperately that we're willing to sin to get it, that's faith's danger zone. It's like walking into a minefield with a sign on it that says, if you walk here, you've already given up on the providence of God. We're even told in Proverbs 3, aren't we? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't make your own plans to save God's reputation. And always acknowledge God and He'll make your way straight. So Sarah is a very good example of temporarily derailing faith. Enduring faith remembers that God orders our lives according to His purposes and promises and our needs. And we're wise when we listen to his advice and receive the direction that he gives us. So let's move on to the final scene, scene four. This is actually taken from two places in Genesis, Genesis 18 and Genesis 21. And this is faith's great, greatest wonder. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, now their names are changed, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? <laughs> I love that. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Listen to this and catch this phrase. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah will have a son. The next year, the Lord visited Sarah, uh, just as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah, just as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham uh, called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. You know, sometimes with God, the events that seem to be delayed for so long suddenly pick up speed. It's almost like it'll turn, it'll just make your head spin. After 13 years have passed, at the age of 99 for Abraham and at the age of uh, uh, 89, uh, 89 for Sarai, God visits once again to announce the time is near, and you're all, you, Abraham, you're going to become the father of a multitude of nations. Now, his name was Exalted Father. Now, his name's going to be... the. The, the father of a multitude of nations. And in order to drive that point home to these, these, this old couple, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations, and he changes Sarai's name, which means princess, to Sarah, which means the mother of kings of nations. Now their names are actually carrying now the very promise that God intends to fulfill. God tells them that this time next year they're, they're going to have a son and they both laugh. They just, oh yeah, that's, a, that's funny. Abraham's laughing because he can't believe that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are going to have a son and have to bring him up. But Sarah laughed too. But when God heard her laugh, he responded differently. He responded with a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this is the moment when I believe... That Sarah's heart turned with faith towards God, believing in him. This is when she began to consider that God is faithful to complete his promises. God was challenging her heart. Her heart broken over years of sorrow, years of longing, years of pain. She's looking at the evidence. It's a mountain now. You know, she's, she's 90 years old. She's never been able to conceive It just staggers her mind and the Lord says to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, this word hard is fascinating because most of the places in the Psalms, that word is translated wonder or wonderful or wonderful deeds. Is anything too wonderful for God to do? That's the question he's asking her. Is anything too wonderful? Look, Sarah, I know it's an extraordinary thing that I'm telling you. It's extraordinary. I know you can't get your mind around it. I get that. But really, I am the Lord who does wonders. I do wonderful deeds. Do you want to see some, Sarah? I'm up to it. That's why I believe that her whole heart changed at that moment to believe that God was wonderful. As that word wonderful, the Lord is wonderful kind of Uh, filtered down through her mind into her heart and deepened and took root in her soul, she began to believe that God could and would keep all of his promises. And the promises, they took root in her heart. And as that happened, God was giving her, this barren woman, the power to conceive a child. The next year Isaac was born. And I think think the couple commemorated what happened that year before because Isaac's Isaac's name means he laughs because they laughed. So they wanted to remember this wonderful deed that God had done in their lives as a reminder that with God miracles are never too hard, his promises are always wonderful, and impossible situations are never a deterrent to obedience to him. So, let's ask, what does the author of Hebrews want us to learn from the story of Sarah? And I think it's three things. First of all, God stretches our faith through impossible circumstances. Sarah's faith did not come without its struggles, without loss, without pain. It was a very long journey filled with valleys of doubt, maybe sometimes a little glimmer of hope, but huge frustrations all along the way. And maybe, maybe she had even given up the idea entirely. But at the age of 90, she discovered that God is the God of wonders, that he could be trusted, and that she continued trusting him, this same God, for the next 36 years until the day that the Lord took her home. So here's my question for you this morning. How many things has the God of wonders been stretching you and your faith through this year? Are you letting him? Are you discovering him as the wonderful counselor that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 9:6? Here's another question. On what basis can we trust that the stretching of our faith will be a great blessing to us? And here's the answer. In Hebrews, because we are in a better covenant than the one Abraham had. It's not a different covenant. It's not different. It's better because it's been completed by Jesus Christ, who is the descendant that God had always seen down the generations that would come through Abraham. If you are in this covenant with Christ, You are in the covenant with Abraham. You are the son. You are the daughter of Abraham and Sarah, of people of faith. God will keep you in this covenant. There's no way that you can escape this covenant unless you were never in the covenant. You will be kept for the day of your salvation. That's this covenant that we just commemorated. That's why God is stretching your faith. The covenant with Abraham, the the way it flows through the scriptures is is like the the Mississippi River. If you've ever seen the headwaters of the Mississippi River, it's in Itasca (laughs) State... It's not Itasca Saints Park, but Itasca State Park in northern Minnesota. There, the headwaters are like a little creek... You can actually jump over them. I've done that. I've jumped over did I didn't, wasn't able to get all the way and got splashed in the water, but it's not very wide. I mean, we're talking about maybe two feet at the most where the headwaters begin. Fifty miles downstream, however, the Mississippi River is as wide as 50 miles across. Further down when you get to Louisiana, pretty much the Mississippi is a mile wide all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. From this couple, this barren old probably impotent man came christ and a flood of grace into the world and you if you know christ you are in that flood of grace he will not let you go the second thing is that god shapes our faith by his unseen promises often the um Jesus would ask his disciples the question, where's your faith? It just seems like that was one of Jesus' diagnostic questions. It wasn't that the disciples had lost their faith or um, uh, didn't know they had faith. Maybe they put it in the wrong places. But Jesus assessed faith as small or great or weak or strong, depending on what people believed about him. He was supposed to be the object of their faith. See, we don't, as Christians, we don't have faith in faith. We don't have uh, a generalized faith. We hear people saying, well, you just got to have faith. Or, We have faith. Where is it? On whom does your faith depend? Your Your faith must depend on a person, not a circumstance, not an event, nothing but Jesus. If your faith is focused on Him, you can say legitimately, I believe God will come through. I, I uh, was watching something. There was some, some I, don't, I forget, some show, and this, and this fellow was talking about faith. And, uh, and, he, and eventually he said, well, I, I, uh, I consulted with the universe, and I got this particular idea, and I went, oh, for crying out loud, the universe is dead. It's not, if it's talking to you, you need to go see a doctor. But his faith is generalized. It's really, I think, what he was saying, whether he knew it or not, is his faith was in himself and not outside himself. General faith doesn't work for us. And so what the Lord does, he is the author and finisher of our faith, the shaper of our faith. We could say that throughout our lives, he's maturing our faith. Through all the years of struggles with the promises of God, God shaped the faith of Sarah and Abraham. And, and we're a lot like those two. We're, we're a lot like them. We, we would have been content in our lives with a few happy friendships, but instead, God wants us to have deep and nourishing friendship with the Son of God and with one another. You know, we might, we might uh, settle or aspire for a little earthly success before we die, but God wants us to aspire for the impossibly high honor of heavenly glory. We'd like to think that we'd be happy with a little bit of wealth, you know, a moderately comfortable retirement and a whole lot of good health, but God wants us to be happy with everlasting life and joy and peace that he has in store for us now and in the future forever. What C.S. Lewis said about the yearnings of this life and the yearnings of our heart is really true. He wrote in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing else in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is, I was made for another world. We are. We are made for another world. And that's where we need to fix our attention, our focus, and our hope in Christ. God stretches our faith through facing and overcoming impossible circumstances. He shapes our faith uh, through acting on His promises. And He sustains our faith in tireless waiting. As we've seen, Sarah's journey was a pretty bumpy one. Over 62 years that she walked with God, she experienced the wonderful deeds of God in her life. And yet we have to ask, was her faith perfect? The answer, of course, is no, it wasn't perfect, but it was perfected. I mean, let's, let's take a stock at some of how her faith was imperfect. She abused her servant Hagar. She dishonored her husband with this very sinful plan of the flesh that gave birth to Ishmael. And she dishonored God, basically accusing him of a slow timetable and she could really help out. But notice the important thing. You will never see God, you will never see in all of that God doing anything except overlooking all of her defects of faith and blessing her anyway. Signified by giving her that new name to show that she has favor with God as the mother of the nations of kings. She earned God's, pardon me, she earned God's commendation not because of her perfect performance but in spite of her checkered performance. Because in the struggle she discovered the only foundation for faith is she considered god faithful that was the key right there for the author of hebrews she considered god faithful and that is what god used and so it is with us regardless of the many ways that we become discouraged by the outcomes uh, that we had hoped for that we don't see or many ways big and small that we wear down and and we might lose some resolve to follow christ or even the number of times that we might take matters into our own hands and try to help God out by using some sinful means to attain the ends that we want, God will often step into our lives with a calming word. And that word is this, from Psalm 27. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord means to rely on him sure to study him to study his attributes commit to his power I'm going to trust the power of God I'm not going to trust the power of Bob I'm going to embrace the goodness of God I'm going to ask for the wisdom of God this is what it means to wait because God knows how to bring together all of the strands of the threads of our lives and superintend those to bring about his plans, not our own. Several years ago, Nita and I were in a, in a, sitting in a Sunday school Bible study of another church and the uh, teacher who, I, I, I believe he was, he was on staff, I, I, I don't right, rightly recall, um, but he, they were talking about a book. They were studying a book. And the chapter that day was on the fatherhood of God. And the author of the book said that he had begun to learn how to pray to his heavenly father by asking him to father him into those things that they were facing. Now, when it comes to facing challenges, big or small, I am really bad, really bad at stopping and praying. I've got to admit it okay it's like oh i know what to do let's just get on with it and i have this wife who is wonderful and says have you prayed about this and in midstream i go "Uh uh-huh right now i'm praying right now but we learn from that teacher no matter what you're facing If you're going to embrace the goodness of God, if you're going to ask God for the wisdom of God, if you're going to trust and rely on God, then remember that he's your father. Now, as a father, I remember what it was like to be a father. I wanted my children to grow in understanding who God was, but to grow in their lives and do wise things, make good choices. They didn't always, neither did I but that was my intention. Well, we have a heavenly Father who is perfect and knows exactly how to deal with us in perfect ways and can usher us into his will if we will ask. So we pray our Father. What are we asking for? We're asking him to father us. So we begin our our prayers most of the times when we're facing these big or small decisions to say... Father, you know, you know, you know my impulse to just go and do this thing. Stop me from doing it and father me into your will. It's been a great deterrent to that impulse to take matters into my own hands. So I want to conclude this message by giving you the same opportunity. With the number of people who are here, there surely are things that you're facing. Big things, huge things. Impossible things, small things, annoying little things. You just want to to get through it. But your heavenly Father wants you to get through it with his wisdom and with his goodness and as an exhibit of his glory. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that uh, this morning as well. We're going to close in prayer in in that very way. And so uh, just ask the um, worship team to return here and and prepare for the end of the service. But as we do, I want you to think about that thing that you're facing. Maybe somebody says you're not facing anything, but you know somebody else who is. Pray for them while we pray. Since the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is your Father... Since, by the blood of Christ, you can come before the throne of grace and ask for those things that you have need of at the time you have need of them. Since he is a good God and wants to do good things to you to demonstrate his great glory, you're free to ask. But ask this way. Father me into your will. Bring that thing, whatever it is, that, that thing you're facing, bring that before him as we pray. I'll lead us in prayer and I'll give you a few moments to, to do that and then we'll close. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you that, that faith, faith is not this vague thing out there. Faith is Christ. Faith in Christ. That's, he is the object of our faith. And we want to be like Sarah, considering God faithful. So we pray that by your grace you will deepen in us this understanding of your, your faithfulness, as as the, the foundation on which we stand when we face all of life's circumstances. Give us endurance, Father. We know we're we're just we're just like the uh, the disciples when they said, "Boy, Lord, if this is true, give us more faith." Or we're like the man who said, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." We we are those those kinds of people, but we want to be like Sarah, who took your word at its face value and trusted in your promises. So make our faith strong in your power, uh, your joy, love, and the sweetness of your wonderful deeds. So, Father, as we come before you this morning and we bring to you that impossible mountain, or that little molehill, whatever whatever it is that we're facing. We pray that you will father us into your will so that we would rest and wait for the Lord and take courage in the Lord before we get up and act. There will be a time to act, but right now it's a time to wait and to ask that you father us. So just take a few moments. Ask the Lord to father you into... His will in that thing that concerns you. Father, we thank you that you are the one who comes to us with this calming word to wait for the Lord, to be strong, to not not be discouraged, but to take courage. Thank you for the faith that you give us as a gift that will never be shaken. And we entrust into your hands all those things that matter to us the most because we know that they concern you as well. Thank you for being our Father because of your Son. And we pray this in his name. And everybody said, Amen.